I'm Alex Melia, and this is Our Voices on Climate Change, a stage for real people to tell the real stories we never get to hear. In this series, we hear impassioned stories from those dedicating their lives to help our planet. If you'd like more people to hear these stories, please share this episode with a friend. Today, you'll hear the behind-the-scenes story of SportAid and how the man behind it wants to change the world. I thought probably in the first instance I should try and call Bob Geldof, and so I did. This is Chris Long. As you can tell, not a man who does things by halves. After leaving school at 16, Chris found himself a job through a friend. Developing commercial greenhouse products for uh, hydroponics and working out in Africa and the Middle East because that's where they needed hydroponics most. Hydroponic farming is a method of growing plants directly in water culture systems without the need for soil. Good systems can grow plants using 10 times less water than traditional methods. So you can imagine the impact potential for arid places like Africa and the Middle East. And I suppose it was my experiences out there that gave me that kind of deep urge to try and help. And I felt the need, and the need, just a desire to do something and a belief that there was something I could do. I truly believe that as individuals, we can affect the world in which we live. The simplicity of belief in your ability to change your environment is one of the most powerful tools you can have. Chris was able to internalise this early in his adult life. It's been crucial in many of his accomplishments. I just spent three years in Greece and it hadn't been the best years of my life. I'd had a breakup with my first wife. Things hadn't gone well for me and I felt a bit broke. And I was certainly broke, but also felt a bit broken. Not long after returning, Chris was flicking through the channels at his friend's house and settled on the six o'clock news. I remember it so incredibly well. The Michael Burke report came on. Michael Burke did the very first report from a campsite called Korem in Ethiopia when he announced that this famine was occurring, a famine of biblical proportions. And I, I stood there and watched and stared at the screen and was absolutely shocked, astounded at what was happening in this world and how there was the potential of 18 million African people that were about to die. It should not happen. It simply should not happen. He wasn't the only one watching TV at the time. Within a week, Band-Aid was announced, spearheaded by Bob Geldof. It was incredible. The music industry had said, we're going to do our bit. And they raised about eight million pounds just before Christmas. I loved it. I bought the record. I remember I used to go and pick my girls up in the car and we used to sit in the back seat of the car and we used to sing along to, you know, do they know it's Christmas and the kids would sing in the back seat. Chris was inspired. And I thought, well, I want to contribute in some way. He had an idea. As he enjoyed running marathons, and they didn't seem too difficult to set up, Chris decided to put on a series of 10 fun runs across the UK, and he called it SportAid. But unsure where to start, he made a bold choice. How do I do it? What do I do? I thought probably in the first instance I should try and call Bob Geldof, and so I did. Now I know what you're thinking. People don't just call Bob Geldof up. But remember, Chris believed that one person could make a difference, so he didn't take no for an answer. It turned out that his first wife's sister was friends with Trudy Styler, Sting's girlfriend at the time and now wife. 
A few phone calls later, he had Bob Geldof's number in his hand. I gave Bob a call out of the blue and just said, I would like to try and help. And uh, anyway, Bob came to my office and I met him for the first time. In their second meeting, Bob told him about his plans for Live Aid. He said, There's going to be these two concerts and we're, we're going to have the best rock stars in the world doing it and we're going to raise a load of money. I said, that's amazing. He said, yeah, we're going to do it at the end of a week. And during the week, we've got things like uh, David Bailey's going to do Photo Aid and Yves Saint Laurent is going to do Fashion Aid. And right at that moment, I said, put me down for Thursday. I'll do Sport Aid. Bob asked him what Sport Aid was. I said, I'll put on a fun run all around the United Kingdom. I'll put on a load of fun run and we'll call it the Race Against Time. And he said, that's brilliant. Let's do it. Chris tried desperately to get his fun run set up before Live Aid, but the timeline was too tight. Chris still went along to Wembley to see Live Aid in person. I thought it was amazing. I, it was inc- I remember watching the Cars video and the Canadian Broadcast Company had recorded this video showing this tiny African child ravaged with famine, literally trying to stand up. There were 70,000 people in Wembley Stadium that just fell silent. There wasn't a dry eye in the, in the house. And that was the moment I said, I'm going to do Sport Aid and it's going to be more than 10 races in the UK. There and then, Chris decided that it needed to be a global event and Africa needed to be centre stage. Chris had a huge vision, but had no idea how he was going to pull it off. It was such a huge project that all of a sudden I felt... You know, how the hell am I going to do this? I, I don't know. I've never done anything like this in my life. How the hell am I going to compete with this? The plan was enormous. He wanted to organise hundreds of races in over 80 countries. Logistically, it was going to be incredibly tough. 35 years ago, I never had the internet. I never had social media. I never had mobile phones as we know them today. Chris knew he needed a base to work from and the ability to build a team to help. Knowing that Birmingham was organising their bid to host the Olympics, he came up with a plan. And I thought, if I go and pitch this to Birmingham Council and say to them, if you host Sport Aid, you could win the Olympic Games. I phoned a local councillor's office, pretended I was Bob Geldof, and said, how would you like to put on Sport Aid? It worked, and he got a meeting. Though they were surprised when Bob didn't show up, the plan worked, and Chris was given use of a porter cabin outside the National Exhibition Centre. Progress was really slow at first, but soon started to snowball. He was given access to a second office in London and a third in New York. With the race day of May 26th, 1986 fast approaching, Chris had 89 national organising committees, Band-Aid, UNICEF, a myriad of other international organisations and thousands of volunteers behind him. They reckoned on the final audit there were about 18,000 volunteers that worked all around the world to help make it happen. The progress was incredible. 274 simultaneous races were organised and coordinated in a matter of months. In '86, I put together probably the most complex television programme ever produced at, at its time. We had 23 live television feeds coming in from all over the world and put out to an audience of one and a half billion that demonstrated 19.8 million people cared enough to put blisters on their feet and take their message to the doorstep of the UN to say they cared. It did raise $35 million on the day and it did cause governments 
to cancel $150 million of African debt. And it was massively, massively successful. And whether the famine that occurred in Ethiopia was caused partially or even totally by climate change, I'm not sure. We're talking now of something that happened 35 years ago. Climate change wasn't at all on Chris's radar back in 86. To get to the beginning of his journey into climate sciences, we have to jump forward to 2002, in Luton of all places. As he was passing through, Chris noticed a shop called Deep Dive. And I went in and had a chat with this guy and discovered then that 20 million people around the world scuba dive for recreational purposes. He loved the idea and was soon a qualified diver. And we were in Mexico in 2002. And we'd been out diving all day and I came home and I had this eureka moment. We were sitting at the resort outside by the pool. It was completely dark. The sky was immense with stars, maybe the effect of a couple of margaritas or two. But I just finished writing up my dive log because every diver keeps a dive log. And I suddenly thought, well, if there are 20 million people around the world doing the same thing as I am today, where is all this data going? Presumably it's going the same place as mine, which is in a cupboard until next time I take it out and do it again. And I thought I wondered whether this data could be of value. When he returned home, he called the World Conservation Monitoring Centre in Cambridge. They said, if you could turn divers into twitchers, you know, like bird watchers, who would collect all sorts of detail, then we could, over time, collect sufficient data that could give us an indication of the changing state of the world's ocean or the health of the world's oceans. And it was then that I started to kind of consider all the ramifications of climate change for the very first time. I got interested in the subject. I started to read about the subject and the effects of climate change in different parts of the world. Chris had found his new project. I took a year out. I worked with UNEP, WCMC and 10 marine biologists from all around the world. We broke every single coastal region down into 30 ecoregions. We selected different indicator species for each of those regions for divers to count and built a website for it called Earth Dive. The idea of Earth Dive was to give divers the opportunity to become citizen scientists and in doing so give our oceans a health check of sorts. The early results of the health check looked bleak to say the least. Climate change had caused them to become more saline, were heating them up, uh, were causing our coral reefs to degrade uh, and die in most cases. In fact, 60% of our coral reefs were under threat. Clearly, most of the biomass that were in our oceans were being stripped out. And basically, the lungs of our planet were incredibly unhealthy. And as we spoke, we took a look back at the famine in Ethiopia back in the mid-80s. Chris said it was impossible to know the scale of the impact climate change had on it. All he knew was that it was at least partially to blame. In the period between then and now, there have been a number of negative environmental changes, like the transition to single-use plastics, the rise in fossil fuel emissions, and fast fashion. Suddenly, you realise that one has been self-absorbed with one's life, although I've tried my best to do my bit. When I was born, the population of the world was half of what it is now. So 
you know, it is without a doubt. And you get climate doubters all the time, but I, I cannot see how you can doubt the fact that that many people, 7.9 billion people in a planet doesn't have any effect on it at all. EarthDive has now been gathering valuable data for over 16 years. We have data contributors from over 120 countries. And I suppose what it's done is it's reinforced in my mind that we don't have to rely upon politicians and policymakers to do what we want. We can go out and do it ourselves. And I think that's the most important thing. Chris's story is fascinating in the way that it shows us how confidence and commitment can bring about monumental change. He set out with an idea and was willing to do whatever was necessary in order to make that idea a reality. Initially, his focus was on helping to raise awareness of starvation in Africa. He focused on the economic and political factors underpinning this. Then he transferred his attention to climate change and has gathered vital evidence as to humanity's impact on the environment. The data EarthDive is helping to provide ought to make us all take pause. This is direct evidence, unmediated by government, showing us how the planet is changing. Our planet is made up of over 70% water, so the change in our oceans reflects the change in our world. As Chris says, we don't have to wait for the government to take the lead. His previous efforts and campaigns show that when people take the lead, the government will follow. If you want to keep in touch with the show and be the first to find out what's coming up next, go to our website, www.ourvoicespodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. And if you haven't already, give us a quick follow in your favorite podcast app. See you for another incredible story next week.